Dave Wardson returns to our discussion of Jesus Christ's model prayer. We have all repeated the words a hundred times. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. But how do we get down to the serious business of being forgiven by God and others? Come on, let's learn together how to give up those cherished grudges. I want you to stop for a minute. I want you to think, how many of you have ever nursed a grudge? In other words, somebody just really got to you and did a dastardly deed to you and you were really hurt by it. I mean, it just hurt you grievously. And it just kind of churned deep in your guts. Doesn't that feel good? Really does. I mean, let's be honest. You know, and have you ever thought of all the creative ways there is to nurture grudge? You know, there was the old playground technique. The old playground technique was you just popped them. You know, you just had a fist fight there in the playground. You got sent to the principal's office. That was one way not to really nurse a grudge, but to make them pay. If somebody wronged you, you just pop them right in the nose. You know, it's kind of the laws of the jungles, and you just let them have it. In some ways, it's a little bit more healthy than some of the adult techniques because popping somebody in the nose as we grow older tends to get us in trouble. You can get an assault and battery charge for what happens on a playground if you do it as an adult. And so we develop different techniques for making someone pay. What are some of the techniques that you might use? We'll have a sharing time today. How to effectively nurse a grudge. I want every one of you to think this morning, because it will personalize the message. If every one of you think back, in fact, right now, right now there's probably many of us that have someone that we haven't forgiven. Some business partners that really messed us up. Maybe it's your, your partner in your marriage. And I want you to stop and think about what happens within when we don't forgive. You know, it's, this is a really, really important thing because as we gather together, the whole point of us being together is to be able to be a family together, to be brothers and sisters, and for us to be able to love one another. And yet, it's very easy for us to have something against one another or something that we have done, maybe a misunderstanding, and we hold on to it and we nurse it. Basically, the way that I've often shared with you, the way that I, the way that I nurse grudges is that I'm really not a hitter. In fact, I'm really not even such a hitter in conversation. You know, you all know Mary and I very well. Mary is much more of a hitter and not, you know, physically, but, but verbally. In other words, if Mary's mad at me, she'll just let me have it, you know, just straight out and tell me, and you'll know and know in certain terms, that she is angry and that she's upset with me. And that's really a quick way because you find out what's on her heart, what's on her mind, and then we're able to hopefully ask for forgiveness and resolve it. What I do is I kind of nurse it, but Mary's working on me. I'm learning to express it more. Uh, like yesterday afternoon, one of our pet things in our marriage is I've been out before the rainstorm. We're having all the leaders and their wives over, which was about 40 people going to be at our house. And I decided that I would edge and so I went over and borrowed my neighbor's edger. If I ever move away from Midlothian, it would cost me about $6,000 to get all the tools that Tommy already has that I can use. <laughs> so I got his edger. And when you edge, 
you go along and, you know, a, a classic edger puts junk all over the sidewalk. The design is incredibly really bad because it spits everything straight back at you. So you have to kind of walk to the side, but you can't walk too much to the side or else you get totally off kilter and you chew up your lawn. You know, it, it kind of looks like letter T's through your lawn if you're not careful. But it also sprays junk all over the sidewalk. So I had done this. It took me about 20 minutes to carefully go all the way around the driveway, around all the sidewalks, get all of it edged, but there's junk all over the sidewalk. Now, Mary had told me that for Mother's Day, I needed to get her a dust mop, a romantic gift that they were selling down at Eckert's and the Lions Club was. So I decided that I would be really nice and that instead of just sweeping off everything, I would go ahead because she had come out a few minutes before and said she wanted to go and get, the, get this dust mop. So I said, I'll go in, we'll go down, I'll be real nice, and we'll get what she wants. And then I'll come back and sweep the walk. She comes charging out, looks at me, and says, you got to sweep the walks. Man, what's, you've got to sweep these walks. Now, Mary's thing is, if you're ever working on something, that one of the pet peeves in our marriage, this is confession time, is, if you're ever working on something, Mary's thing is to come out and pick out the one thing you haven't done. <laughs> and that just gets me so badly. So I let her have it. I just let her have it. Both barrels, you know. Because I'm learning. It's better just to say I'm angry, just wham. But, you know, it's real important. In fact, maybe this morning will be part of the time... Uh, she slept in me last night, so I guess things were relatively all right. But what happens in a marriage, you see, we can laugh about that, and it's humorous, and being open about this, it becomes funny. But the truth of the matter is, you know, it's those little things like that that destroy marriages. You see, what a lot of husbands do is when the wife does that, they just hold it in, and then they nurse it. They really nurse that grudge. And what they do is they emotionally withdraw from their partner. And they hold that in. They really do. They hold it in forever and ever and ever. And I am sure that some of you are holding in and nursing grudges today. Philip Yancey wrote an article in Christianity Today about forgiveness. And he mentioned that in a college classroom, he asked a number of the college students to give them one thing they remembered about the teaching of Jesus. It's very interesting, the most dominant response that they said about the teaching of Jesus is, he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or he said, if someone offends you, turn to them to the other cheek. If someone does an offense against you, turn the other cheek. Now, that is one of the most unique, but it's also one of the hardest realities of Christianity, of biblical Christianity. Now, we're at the point in the Lord's Prayer where we all piously pray, Father, forgive us our debts. And I love the fact that God uses money, because money is a very powerful... The word debt usually stands for money problems, money debt, money that we owe. And Jesus uses that as a symbol of our sin and the debt that we owe to God. And so this morning, as we talk about forgiveness and we talk about the dynamics of forgiveness, 
We need to first of all focus on the reality of this vertical relationship where we need to learn to pray as we're here together. One of the prayers that we pray is on a vertical level. Father, forgive us our debts. Matthew chapter 6. Look at it. Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. It says, forgive us our debts. Now that's this vertical relationship. One of the things we should do together as we're praying and in our own private time and also in our corporate time, we ask the Lord to forgive us for our sins. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 18 and we can think about what it means to rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. The Lord told a very powerful story. A very, very powerful story in Matthew chapter 18. And by the way, one of the dominant themes of this chapter is forgiveness. Peter raised the issue of forgiveness in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? How many times shall I forgive my wife? If Mary nails me on the one thing I haven't done, one, I don't say anything, I forgive her. Two, I don't say anything, I forgive her. Three, I don't say anything. Five, six, seven, then I leave. See, that's what Peter's saying. And that's the games that all of us play. We really do. And that's the suppression, repression, denial game. We stuff it. We're really not forgiving. You see, Peter is saying, Lord, I'm going to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The seventh time, then I'm going to hold the grudge and I'm going to make him pay. Now, the Lord was dealing with this. We can see forgiveness. And I want you to really think about this. The reason the Lord said, forgive us our debts, is because forgiveness, the guts of forgiveness, is Payment. Who is going to pay? You see, what all of you need to ask yourself, if you're nursing a grudge, you might be nursing a grudge against a family member. You might be nursing a grudge against a business associates. On and on we could go. Maybe a friend at school. Now, the essence of what you're doing in nurturing, in nurturing that grudge is you are figuring out ways to make them pay. Because that's the issue that's at stake in forgiveness. Who is going to pay? And Peter's saying, I can count one, two, three, four, five, six. I can let them off. I cannot make them pay six times. In other words, I will let it go. I won't let them pay the debt. I won't make them pay six times. But on the seventh time, they're going to pay it in full. Man, they're going to pay in the dotted line, and they're going to pay for the rest of their life. That's the idea. That's the way unforgiveness talks. Now, Jesus is a very skillful teacher. He doesn't just lambaste Peter, but he tells him a story. And you know this story well. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. And you all know that that means if you're counting or not forgiving. But then he gets into the guts of forgiveness. Now, listen. Jesus tells this story that first of all begins with this vertical dimension of God's forgiveness for us. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, the relationship with God that we have, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began a settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, let's say that he owed him $10 million. That would be the equivalent of what he's saying here. Something like 10 or $12 million, an unpayable sum for this servant. And this servant was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So we're faced with a servant who's got a totally, unbelievably 
unable to pay debt. This is an excruciating, painful, totally impossible situation to deal with. And you need to enter into it. You, you can imagine you're a husband. Let's suppose you have four kids, maybe a precious little baby, and you have gotten so deep in debt that you're four or five million dollars down. And you could save from now for the rest of your life, you're not going to be able to cover it. And you're living back in the first century where they didn't have compassionate laws. It was kind of like what you probably know from England, the England of, of Dickens' day where there was debtor's prison. If you got too deep into your Visa card or too deep into American Express or whatever it might be, in the olden days, you got thrown in jail for it until you could pay. And that's the kind of a culture that we're dealing with here. So this servant goes in and the Lord, this master that's over him, confronts him with his four or five million dollar debt. It's obvious he has no resources at all. And the master says, you will be thrown into prison, as well as your entire family. Now, that's a really tough situation. Now, obviously, what's underneath this parable, because we're talking about a vertical relationship, if you're really going to understand what the Bible's teaching about our relationship with God, it needs to begin with, we have a totally unpayable debt to pay to God. Like what I just described to you. When Mary came out and hit me with, why didn't you sweep the walks? Why is it that I flare up in, in anger? And what's coming up from deep inside of me is, I could kill you. I could murder you. Now, you don't want to talk like that, but that's what's inside of us. Where did that anger come from? Why don't I just naturally say, well, honey, you know, I'll do it in just a few minutes, or I'll do it right now if you would like, and then we'll go, why don't I respond like that? Because I'm a sinner and so are you. And that vicious anger that wells up, that temper that wells up. I remember as a kid playing football, man alive after one down on the kickoff when the guy came down and somebody laid me out. Man, it would make me angry. And even had some coaches that would say, man, that's really good because then you'll play really well. And the whole thing began to be, man, I'm going to really get somebody good. Where does that come from? Where does that vicious anger that wants to make somebody really pay, where does that come from? It comes from an unpayable debt that's inside of my heart. And one of the things that we're going to really have biblical faith in this group of believers, we need to really understand what our problem is outside of Christ. We've been studying the book of Romans with some men on Wednesday, and, and, and we, I think it's important for us to constantly come back to the book of Romans, because one of the biggest problems in American society today is we don't know how bad it is. We don't know how bad we are. We even have preachers that are being trained on a Sunday morning, be sure not to say anything about the badness of people, because that turns them off. They don't want to learn about their badness. Now, I understand that if all that we ever say is all that we ever do is talk about our badness and there's never any good news, that's really going to be bad. And guys that are doing it vindictively and angrily, that's sick. But I want to share something with you. The power of positive thinking is not going to pay your unpayable debt or mine. It's not going to take care of my vicious, murderous anger inside of me. It's not going to take care of the tremendous sin that wells up inside of me. Lust of immorality, 
desiring to steal, cussing, all of those things that are just part of the fabric of our life outside of Christ. In this story, we are the servant with the unpayable debt. Now, what a lot of us try to do at that point is we say to the master, I'll tell you what, we'll work out a special deal. I owe you $4 million, and what I will do, I will start giving you. I can get a dollar a week, and I will pay on my debt a dollar a week, and I will do it from now for the rest of my life. Won't that be great? See, that's what all religion is. Going to church, reading the Bible, trying to do good works, being active in the community affairs, all of religion. All of religion outside the Bible is about trying to pay God a dollar a week. And you know the incredible thing about it? When we're on that kind of a relationship with God, when we're paying Him a dollar a week, when we owe Him four or five million dollars, we think we're really great. We think God should appreciate it. Man alive, God, I went to church today. Aren't I good? I paid you a dollar. That'll help take care of my debt of sin. In fact, I went to school with some guys that what they would do is they would go to church late Saturday night to take care of the sin that they committed on Saturday. It was all like a payment for services rendered. And the whole idea was, you know, you go and you confess and you get everything right with God and then you start in another week and then you build up your sin quotient, your debt of sin, then you go and take care of it by religious actions. And that was a very blatant form of this Economic transaction. There's any banker in our midst. How many of you as a banker would take someone that owes you $4 million, they promise you that you'll, they'll pay you a dollar a week. How many of you will take that? Is that going to work in the banking industry? Man, my bankers don't tell me, well, that'll be great, Dave. I think that's great. And then I saw her in the bank and said, hey, I paid you another 25 cents this week. Pat me on the back. Man, they don't do that at all. And they say, hey, where can you owe this thing $4 million? What are you going to do about it? Well, I would do what the servant does. This would be very hard, but I would do what the servant does. Look what he does. He weeps and wails. He says, be patient with me. He begs, and I will pay back everything. That was a lie. What in any way he could pay it all back. Notice what the servant's master does. But the servant's master took pity on him. And he canceled the debt and he let him go. And that's the gospel. The gospel is about canceling a debt and letting it go. That's what the gospel is. It's canceling this debt and letting it go. Now, how do you think that servant felt when he walked out of that master's bank? Have you ever just paid off your account? Probably not. Now, I'm sure some of you have. How did that feel? Didn't that feel great? Now, just multiply that a million times because you just owed a totally unpayable debt. And by a wonder of grace, it's totally paid for. I love Stuart Briscoe. Stuart was a banker before he became a pastor. And in only the way that a Britisher can talk about bank transactions, there's just something about a British accent and banks and that. But Stuart talked about being a bank accountant for years and years and years. And describing what I've just described, he talked about opening the ledger book to his account. And as he went down the columns, he saw $4 million. And he realized he could never, never pay. And then he pictures for us, he pictures the Lord Jesus leafing through the bank ledger book and coming to Stuart Briscoe's account. 
And he described kind of like he was back in the olden days of banking before it was all done on computers. He talked about taking out his pen. And the Lord Jesus draws a line through the $4 million. And then he writes underneath the $4 million, put to the account of Jesus Christ. And then he leaped over through the pages, Jesus Christ, $4 million. And then underneath that he wrote, paid in full. Now that's good news. That is really good news. And that's the good news that we all need to get a hold of. We need to be like the servant that understands the the unbelievable reality of our debt. But then he goes on and experiences that even more unbelievable reality of the good news that because of what Christ did for us in Calvary, Because he died for us, he paid the millions upon millions of dollars of debts of sin that we have. And that's what produces an exuberant group. That's what heaven came down and glory filled my soul. That's what it means. What makes heaven come down? When I rejoice and I accept forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us to pray. Father, forgive us our debts. Because we all need that. How are our debts forgiven? Because Jesus paid the debt in full. Now, some of you have heard that so long, it's become so commonplace that it doesn't move inside of you anymore. But what it needs to do is create a whole different approach to life. Was that fair for Jesus to do that? Was that fair for Jesus just to cancel your debt? Well, yes and no. He wasn't obligated to do it. But Jesus' death for our sin was just. It did pay the account in full. It was what our debt of sin demanded. But it really wasn't fair for someone that was innocent to have to pay that debt for us. And that's because in the cross of Calvary, we're really not talking about business transaction and fairness. We're talking about love. And love is a miracle. It's a very strange thing that causes us to let something go and let Jesus pay for it. Now, what happens to somebody? Now, that's this vertical relationship. Now we get to the hard part. Almost all of you say, well, Dave, that's good. I understand that. Man, I've really received God's forgiveness in Christ. I've got you, man. That's great. Heaven came down and filled my soul. The next part gets kind of tough. Look what it says. It says, but when that servant went out, of, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. But this is a nice fellow. Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. What did the other servant just done? He just done the same thing in the, in the presence of his master. The fellow servant begged him and said, oh, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. This servant only owes a couple dollars. He would be able to pay his fellow servant back. But the servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned on him and turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then these thunderous words. That's how my heavenly father will treat each of you 
unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, that's the second part. Forgive us our debts, what? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, why does Jesus Christ connect horizontal forgiveness with vertical forgiveness? Because if we can't forgive on the horizontal level, then what it means is that deep in our hearts, deep in our hearts, we haven't understood what it means for God to forgive us. What it means is that we really haven't transferred to a different plane, a different lifestyle. You see, it's very, very possible that a whole lot of you out there are living in a dog-eat-dog existence. In other words, as you walk out of this room, your philosophy is that the powerful wins, and it's going to be fair. And if somebody messes with you, you're going to take care of them. And that's a very dominant philosophy, I'm sure, in many of our minds. And what this parable, what this story is doing, it is attacking that approach to life. Because that approach to life is going to take your life. It's going to destroy relationships. It'll destroy your marriages. It'll destroy your business relationships ultimately. It will take you away from closeness with others. Because I want to share something with you right now. Life in this planet as we live it, in your marriages, in your business world, in your school world, life is not fair. It isn't fair. You are going to get messed up. You're going to be treated badly. And if you're going to go through life trying to make it fair, you're going to get awfully tired because it's not going to be fair. You're going to be treated unjustly. You're going to be abused. You're going to get some things that you don't deserve at all. And if your basic approach is you look at it in life, man, it's going to be fair. And I'm going to make sure it's fair and I'm going to make sure nobody ever takes advantage of me. If that's your philosophy of life, then what I've got out there is an angry person. And angry people just kind of smolder. You know the sad thing about angry people? It all turns against them. And it becomes sulfuric acid in their guts. And it just eats it away. Now, I want you to think as we talk about this. You say, Dave, why can't I forgive? I want you to stop and really think about this. Why can't I forgive? You see, the whole issue in forgiveness is the issue of who's going to really make it fair and who can make it just. You see, if you think about the people that you haven't forgiven, for example, let's suppose you have a friend that said something to you that was really mean, that you thought was just totally cruel, it was something that was totally untrue about you, and you're mad at them about it. The issue here is, they shouldn't have done that. They should not have said that about me. Or they shouldn't have, they shouldn't have misunderstood me. Now the issue becomes, what am I going to do? I am angry. And this text about forgiveness is not saying, thou shalt not be angry. That's what a lot of us think. A lot of us think of, of someone that's really a Christ-like person. They just kind of sail through life like Casper the Friendly Ghost. You know, they never get angry. You know, they're just kind of sweet. You can put your fist right through them. You don't hit anything. They're just kind of there. You know, just always smiling, happy and joyful. That's what we're talking about. Really forgiving people are people that really know what anger is about. In fact, the scripture says, if you're angry, don't sin. And what it's implying is that you live every day, you're going to get angry. 
What the Lord is saying is that when we are offended by somebody, what are we supposed to do? Someone's offended you and it's broken the relationship and you're beginning to think in your heart, man, I don't love that person. I don't want to be close to that person. I don't like that person at all. What are you supposed to do? Matthew 18 earlier says, if your brother offends you, go to them. I want you all to repeat, if your brother offends you, if your sister offends you, what are you supposed to do? Tell me. Go to them. What don't you do? What are you afraid of doing? You know, that's one of the hardest commands to obey of our Lord Jesus. No, instead, we'd rather just smolder it. We just sink it. We do everything. We talk to others. We do all kinds of things. The one thing we don't do is go right directly to the offensive person and confront them with it. And we've got all kinds of reasons for not doing that. But the Lord says, if you have been offended by somebody and anger begins to well up inside of you, you need to go to them and you need to have a confrontational talk, an open talk where you get it out and talk about it. You say, well, Dave, what happens if they don't respond to me? What happens if they don't respond to me? Well, then you're supposed to get a friend. So evidently, other people are aware of this. You know what? If someone's messing you up, they're probably messing a lot of other people up, and you'll find someone else that's been offended by them too. And so the two or the three of you are to go, not to wipe the person out, but because you love them. You see, the reason we need to confront one another is because we love one another. Because we really care. We don't want to let people get away. So you get someone else. And then it says you bring it up before the whole church. So the whole church can stomp on them and throw them out of the family of believers. That's not what Matthew 18 is talking about. Matthew 18 is a whole chapter about forgiveness. This is the chapter that has this story about the lamb that wanders away. The one little lamb. And God is concerned to bring the one little lamb back. This chapter is about restoration. And so the whole church family becomes aware of a brother or sister who's being offensive. And it begins to pray for this brother and sister to be repentant. You see, this is the hitch. You say, well, Dave, what happens when I confront a brother or I confront somebody and, you know, they just start staying their wickedness? We can't clear up the misunderstanding. They really have wiped me out. They really have acted unjustly. They've really acted crazy. What do I do then? You challenge them to repent. You challenge them to have a change of heart. If they don't have a change of heart, then you exercise some of what we just talked about with two or three, a church family that really cares, and you pray. And then you say, well, Dave, and then I can get them, right? No, because you see, Romans 12, the very end of it says something very important. I want you to turn there, Romans chapter 12, because this is very important in forgiveness. Romans chapter 12. Do not take revenge. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning cold in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The whole issue of forgiveness flows into who's really going to be God. If we are unforgiving, then what we're doing is saying, I'm going to be God, and I'm going to take the issue of justice into my personal account. And I'm going to go through life kind of like a Louis L'Amour Western, 
And we're going to generate justice for our family. That's why, how many of you like Louis L'Amour? Louis L'Amour has a great sense of Old Testament style justice. And what it is, if somebody offends you, then you're fast enough and you're quick enough to blow them off the face of the earth. And the good guys win. Now, in the Old West, a guy that was fast with a six-shooter that said, I will take care of justice on my hip. You know what he was saying? Very clearly he was saying, I'm God. Because he would rip it out and blow someone into eternity and things would be fair, right? Now, there's something deep inside of you that really, something you see, we respond to that. That's why Louis L'Amour sells millions upon millions. That's why I've read a bunch of his books and I love his description of the West. But I want you to face very clearly this sense of justice. And I want you to think about what Jesus is really saying. What he's saying is, if you're in a situation where you have tried to win somebody back and they won't repent, they stay in their wickedness, what Romans is saying is, then you're to let God be God. The next chapter goes on and talks about the area of life, the government. Like if there's been criminal activity against us, Romans 13 presents the government as a place for us where God can express his justice. And that takes a lot of faith these days especially. And then ultimately in eternity, ultimately in eternity, God promises us that there will be a just payment for all sin that's committed against us. And what this scripture is saying is that ultimately there's going to be justice. And it's going to be at the throne of God. And we need to let God be God. You say, well, Dave, how is that going to happen? All of sin, you've heard me say this before, but it's really crucial to forgiveness. All of sin is going to be paid for on the cross of Calvary. And when someone comes to that cross, they're given a new life. They're given a new heart. And they become a different person by grace, by a gift of God. If they don't come to that place in their life where they believe in the gospel, then they're going to face the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, it'll come up. The books will be opened and it will read, John Doe stole from such and such a person, maybe one of you, and they wiped out your business. They lied about you. They destroyed your reputation. And that's why you lost a business that was prospering. And it'll be right there in the books. And it will be totally just. In other words, things about that situation that you don't know anything about, that I don't know anything about, it'll all be there. The books will be open, Revelation tells us. And all the motivations, all the insights. The book of Hebrews says, and the book of Isaiah says, that the Messiah will not even need anyone to be a witness because he will already know everything about, everything is judging completely. And you know what it said? It says, those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Is that justice? Yes. Because things are going to be fair eventually, but it's God who's going to make it fair. Now, where does this come down to us? If we are not able to forgive one another, then we know nothing of Calvary love. You see, if I just put Mary away from me and say, you still do the same thing, Therefore, I will not talk to you for four days. 
And we smile about that, but that's what some of you are doing. That you haven't, some of you, there's terrible, terrible situations that develop. Husbands and wives, they live together, don't even, don't even sleep in the same bedroom anymore. Kids see mom and dad, they come and they're all joyful and happy on Sunday morning. They know mom and dad hate each other's guts. You walk into a business office and it's like poison in the atmosphere, like hydrogen sulfide smelling like rotten eggs throughout that office because nobody forgets. It's very real what we've talked about today. What Jesus says, he says, David, this is my daughter that I gave to you. She's forgiven. Her debt has been totally paid. She offended you. Will you let me pay it? Now, we can all talk here piously. It's Sunday morning, you know, we're talking. We can be really pious. But as I sit on the couch watching TV, it's going through my mind. I really, that was really a dastardly thing. And Jesus starts saying, hey, what have I had to forgive you for? What are you like without me? And that's when the cross of Christ needs to let us let go. It's what enables us to get over the hardness and get away from the distance and get close to each other again. This prayer is one of the most important prayers of the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. We should be like the, like the servant that just found out, hey, my debt's been paid in full. I'm clean. Rejoice in that today. But where the rubber meets the road, what connects us with this invisible relationship, what exposes this invisible relationship is the visible relationship. Do you forgive the person sitting next to you? Do you forgive the person sitting across the church from you? Do you forgive people in town? Ask yourself, how long am I going to try to be God? How long am I going to try to make everything fair? When will I let Jesus forgive? Some people have hurt your kids. You know, that's one of the hardest things to forgive. Some of you have had another parent that maybe misunderstood something your kid did and they got on your kid for it and you can't forgive them. It can happen right in the hallway to the Sunday school. Do you nurse that grudge? Do you let it divide you from another member of the body of Christ? You know what Sunday morning should be? It should be a time where people kind of meet together. And if they've offended one another, they confess it. And then they hug. And they say, let's remember Calvary. That's what we're here today. Let's remember Calvary. And it's real easy to sit here and talk about, forgive us our debts and to say it very glibly. But the Father says the way we forgive one another is a direct expression of how much Calvary love has invaded our life. And what the Lord says to me this morning when he says to you this morning, if if I can't forgive Mary, if I can't forgive you, if I can't forgive those that offend me, then I really haven't learned. I know nothing of Calvary love. Now, what do you do about that? You don't go out and work on forgiveness. You don't go out and try harder. What you do is open yourself up to the forgiveness of Calvary love. You remember who you were without Him. You remember your problem. You remember your debt. And you open yourself up to that unpayable debt. And you recapture that joy, the wondrous miracle of forgiveness. And then you let it spill over in your relationship with your family, with your business associates, with your town.
with all the people you meet and you start living out this vertical forgiveness from God enables me to live horizontally in an attitude of forgiveness instead of an attitude of justice.